Great. Good morning. Glad to be with you this morning. It is uh, really exciting to be here. I've heard so much uh, good things about Trinity Fellowship. I heard about this, uh, this church plant in this place called Ildeshane, which uh, that is a, a town name I, I would have never heard growing up, so I feel like I'm really in a new place. And then we show up, and here we are. I'm like, wow, I'm really in a new place. Um, I'm originally from New Jersey, so farmland is not something I grew up seeing very much. But this is really wonderful, and uh, you, just such a warm reception already. I couldn't get in the door without getting greeted by a few folks, so that's a beautiful thing. Um, so it is a joy to be with you. I, uh, so as uh, your brother has previously said, Don? No, Don, as Don said. Uh, I, I'm from Trails Church uh, in the southeast of Winnipeg, and uh, yeah, we, we're new to Canada, my wife Annabelle and I. It's been a real exciting time to be here. Um, pray for us as we enter winter. Um, you know, we're originally from New Jersey, but it's been a few years since we've seen a real winter, so it'll, it's going to be an interesting one. So, uh, and I do want to just let you know, we're, we're very glad to be here, but we are going to have to leave uh, pretty soon after to make it to uh, the service at Trails, so um, please, uh, thank you for understanding that. So I'm really excited uh, to open this text with you this morning, because I love the book of Matthew, and I love that your church is going through the book of Matthew, and I also love the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and this week, we're tackling Jesus' words on uh, anger and lust, two subjects that I'm, I'm sure we need no help whatsoever. I mean, no, no help there at all. Yeah, we got these things just locked down. Of course not. We, we need God's word to do its work in changing our hearts this morning. So let's read our passage here, and I'm actually going to start with part of what was preached on last week in verse 17. So if you would uh, turn with me to uh, Matthew 5, and we're going to start here at verse 17. Okay. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his, eye, in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better 
that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much that we have been given so much in Christ, Lord, that by his grace we can look at your word and call it beautiful, Lord, because in our, in our sinfulness, Lord, we are so uh, repulsed by the truths within your, within your word. But Lord, we just ask that they would be a balm, a sweet nectar to our souls this morning. Even though they are, they are hard things, Lord, we know that hard things are good for us. And so, Lord, we, I ask that you would be with me as I share uh, from this passage. Lord, that you would give me wisdom as I speak. Give me clarity. Lord, also give these people receptive hearts and uh, minds to comprehend. And, to, and uh, would you also reorient our desires to live these things out in powerful and beautiful ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, before we get into uh, Jesus' words on anger and lust here, we need to orient ourselves to where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, now, what is significant about what we just read is that verse 17 begins the first section of the body, like the main body of the sermon. So, verse, so that means verses 2 through 16 uh, make up the introduction. And from this point, especially in uh, verses 17 through 20, we are already able to understand Jesus' main idea of this entire sermon. So in the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is revealing to us the kind or standard of righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we see from what are often called the Beatitudes that Jesus is describing the qualities or attitudes of citizens of the kingdom. Then in verses 13 through 16, the passage on salt and light there, he defines what the witness of those kingdom citizens will look like. But in verses 17 through 20, this is where we see the theme of the sermon the clearest. For it's verse 20, exactly, that is actually the main verse or thesis statement, if you will, of the entire Sermon on the Mount. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here we see that in order to enter the kingdom, there is a standard of righteousness that is necessary. And we need to take a moment here and realize how unbelievably jaw-dropping this sentence would have been to his listeners. Who are the Pharisees? These, these guys are the most pious dudes in all of Israel. They zealously and stringently tried to keep the law and the tradition of the elders and scribes. They were also the teachers and interpreters of the law and the ones who codified all these additional traditions that Jesus repeatedly preached against. But to the average Jew in the first century, in first century Israel, the Pharisees were the apex of righteous living. So for Jesus' audience, this sentence 
would have just walloped them like a ton of bricks. Are you, are you kidding me, Jesus? These dudes are the most righteous people on the planet, and you're telling me that my righteousness needs to exceed theirs? That's impossible. And they would be right. It is impossible. And Jesus doubles down even harder at the end of chapter 5. There we see in verse 48, please, please take a look there. Verse 48, Jesus just outright declares what the standard of righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom actually is. It's, it's perfection. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If the Jews listening would have thought verse 20 was brutal, verse 48 must have had them in a panic but that, that's exactly what they needed. They needed, and, and we need also, to be taught that it is impossible to keep the law to the standard required of us. Because the standard is God's perfect righteousness. They, they did not understand this. One of the things that was so abhorrent to Jesus was the prevailing belief, the the common belief of the day, according to Pharisaical Judaism, that it was actually possible to keep the law and to be righteous. We see the evidence of this all over the Gospels, but I think very uh, effectively uh, in the story of the rich young ruler, Do you remember that story of the rich young ruler? The man comes up to Jesus and asks him, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by listing several commandments and for the man to obey them. And what does the guy say? All these I have kept. What? (laughs) The guy was delusional. He was deceived in his belief that he had actually kept the law. And so were many others. And so are many today who are deceived by this. So what, what was their problem? Well, ultimately, ultimately they didn't understand the law at all. And so the fulfiller of the law needed to teach them that they didn't understand the intent of the law. And if they didn't understand the intent of the law, then the law did not produce one of its intended effects. Because the law reveals our need for righteousness. It is the standard that shows us how far we fall short and how desperately we need a righteousness that is not our own. But the the Pharisees foolishly spent their lives and efforts only concerned with uh, teaching and obeying the letter of the law, but they completely ignored the spirit of the law. And this is why Jesus so seriously called out the Pharisees for their bankrupt definition of righteousness. To quote from uh, Bible teacher Dwight Pentecost, uh, In repudiating Pharisaic righteousness, 
Christ had shown that their righteousness did not conform to the demands of the law and that keeping their tradition did not make one righteous. Christ also had to show why the observance of Pharisaic rules did not fulfill the law of God. Christ now did this. So this is the purpose in chapter 5, verses 21 through 48. Jesus is not merely teaching good morals and ethics. Uh, don't, Don't misunderstand me. He is absolutely teaching right morals and ethics. But he is not only doing that. He's doing much more than that. Jesus is giving illustrations. And he gives these illustrations in chapter 5, verses 21 through 48 to show them that the Pharisees were wrong about their understanding of the intent of the law. And this last point is very important for us to understand and to get straight here. Jesus is not raising the standard of the law. Let me say that again. Jesus is not raising the standard of the law. He is not saying that at one point it was okay to keep only the letter of the law, and now that's not the case anymore. He's not saying that. He reveals to them what the intent and standard of the law always was. And it is in this correct understanding of God's true intention for the law that the law effectively reveals our great need for righteousness. Why? Because we see in the rest of chapter 5 that if we have broken the spirit of the law, then we have broken the letter of the law. Okay, so let's be clear here. Let's, Let's get this straight. What is the letter versus the spirit of the law? Okay, what do those things mean? So the letter of the law is to obey merely what it says as it is written. The law says, don't murder, don't commit adultery. So if you haven't killed anybody, and if you haven't cheated on your spouse, then you haven't broken the letter of those laws. But in teaching us to obey the spirit of the law, we see that Jesus wants us to understand that there is a root and fruit relationship with laws. To obey the spirit of the law is to follow the intended principles underlying the command itself. And we see this clearly in in these two examples that we're looking at today. Anger and lust are the roots of within the heart which bear fruit in the actions of murder and adultery. Therefore, Jesus wants us to understand that whenever the root of a given law is broken, a person has broken the law even though the root has not yet produced its fruit. Let me say that again. Jesus wants us to understand that whenever the root of a given law is broken, a person has broken that law even though that root has not yet produced its fruit. And we do this not only with the laws discussed here in chapter 5, nor do we do this only with the Ten Commandments. In fact, in Christ, we also 
are called to fulfill the intended spirit of the law. Now, this, this may be a surprise or a bit confusing, but please, please stick with me here because I believe this is really important and really beautiful. Often, uh, we as Christians really don't know what to do with the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. What most often happens is, is we say, like, okay, Jesus fulfilled the law, so let's not worry about it and concern ourselves with understanding it. Or maybe you have heard some say that there are three categories of laws, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law, and, and then that the first two aren't really important for today, and we just need to can kind of concern ourselves with following the morals of the law. And that might be helpful, but the, the problem there is that there are no such divisions made in the Torah. So what do we do with the law as Christians? This is, this is one of the often overlooked significant aspects of Matthew five twenty one through 30. Because Jesus is giving us a way, a method of understanding the intention that the law was given. Because there are so many laws in the Torah that are just, just strange to us and confusing. Don't wear clothes with mixed fabrics. Touching a dead body makes you ceremonially unclean. Not to mention all the dietary laws. Does any of that stuff matter? Well, yes and no. No, in the sense that Christ has rendered the law of Moses obsolete. Now we are free from needing to follow the letter of the law. However, yes, in that Christ, in Christ, we can fulfill the spirit of the law. And it should be said that even in this, we certainly do not do this in order to achieve righteousness. But I find that it is beautiful to know that the law, even today, even today, can teach us how we are to follow the Lord now that we are in Christ. So let me explain how this works a bit further. So when we look at each individual law, it can become kind of confusing. But when we read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we begin to see themes within the law, categories that groups of laws fit within, and from there we begin to notice patterns. For example, we see the command to not wear clothes with mixed fabrics, and we learn that God gave this command and others like it about not mixing things to his people so that they would remember that they are to be set apart and holy unto himself and not mixed among the nations. And so we as Christians are, are free to wear polycotton blends, but we are called to be holy and set apart to the Lord. And we recognize that, and when we recognize that and live like that, we actually fulfill the spirit of that law. That's amazing. Or take all the many laws concerned with uncleanness or purity. We don't have to avoid certain foods, or maybe some of us. I'm allergic to nuts. Um, I have to avoid those, but not for any legal reason. Um, and we don't have to concern ourselves with uh, ritual cleansings and being ceremonially pure. However, however, we are called to be pure in our hearts and our lives. 
God is very concerned with our purity. So in that way, we in Christ fulfill the spirit of those laws. That is beautiful. And I hope that this inspires you to kind of dust off some of those uh, less worn pages of your Bible and to be able to see some significance in them for, for us today. But this leads me to another very important question. If this can be done with any law, so understanding the spirit versus the letter of the law, if this can be done with any law, why did Jesus explain this with these laws? If this can be done with any of the laws, why here did Jesus talk about murder and adultery and not any of the other laws? And sure, Jesus goes on to discuss divorce and oaths and retaliation, but in our text for today, these are the only two of the Ten Commandments he teaches on. Why, why is this significant? Because, to me, if Jesus is trying to teach on the kind of righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom, then why doesn't he teach here on, say, idolatry? That's pretty important. It seems like an important topic that he'd want to address with regards to righteousness. I mean, the first three commandments are huge. So, I believe that one of the reasons that Jesus teaches on the commandments not to murder and commit adultery as opposed to the others relates to the need of his audience that we discussed earlier. Remember that the Jews in his audience believed the Pharisees' lie that was only concerned with keeping the letter of the law. They believed that their righteousness only depended on keeping the law to the letter. So what did they need? They needed to understand, they needed an understanding of the law that showed them how sinful they really were and how much they needed a different kind of righteousness. So this is in part why Jesus chose to teach on murder and adultery. Because here's the thing. If I'm only concerned about keeping the letter of the law, you know what commandments I don't really worry about all that much? Probably these two. I mean, obeying the letter of these two laws is pretty straightforward. I mean, lots of people all over the world go their whole lives without murdering or cheating on their spouse. But if you then told me that I was actually judged according to the spirit of the law... You know what commandments I'd probably be worrying about every day? Probably these two. And this is in part of what the big picture corrective that we need here is. We need to see that we are judged according to the spirit of the law, not the letter. And the law does its job here real well. It shows us how much we lack the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom. And so how, do, how does he do this? Okay, let's, let's look at our text now. I, we've been talking a lot about the text but, and not really looking at the text. And so, so let's look at the text together. 
Jesus says in verses 21 through 22, You have heard it that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now this sets up a pattern repeated throughout the rest of the chapter, the the you have heard it said, countered with the but I say to you. Uh, This relates back to Jesus' overarching intention to correct their understanding of the law. And recall again that he is not elevating the standard of the law, but showing them what that standard had always been. And we see that anger towards a brother is guilty of breaking the spirit of the law regarding murder. So, who does that include? Uh, Probably everybody, right? But interestingly... In verses 22, in verse 22, there are three restatements of this same idea given in an escalating fashion. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So here we see first that unexpressed anger within someone's heart, uh, in the heart of a person, proves them guilty then verbally insulting a person could lead you to stand trial in civil court. The word for counsel actually refers to the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish high court. And if that wasn't enough, we see that the expression of anger also subjects you to divine judgment. Good night. Now before we move on from here, I I want to make something clear. Jesus is not saying that just being angry or insulting someone is as bad as murder. And I say that not necessarily because you're thinking it, but because it is something I have heard critics say just far too often. And I find it to be a silly accusation. It's obvious that the seriousness and the consequences of killing somebody are much worse than being angry with somebody. But that's not the point. The point is that according to God's standard of righteousness and his appointment of justice, both anger and murder make one liable to judgment. That's the point. But what's interesting in verses 23 through 26 is that Jesus is not only concerned with the fact that we are angry. He's actually very concerned about what we do about it. And not only that, he is concerned with what we ought to do when we make others angry with us. Look at verses 23 through 26 again. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you that you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now here we see that Jesus calls us to determinedly and swiftly pursue reconciliation. Contrary to what we would expect, he tells us to pursue 
reconciliation when we're the offending party. Not when someone's made us mad, when we've made somebody else angry. Look again at verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, when your brother has something against you, not that you remember that you have something against your brother. And in the following legal illustration, Jesus tells us to come to terms quickly with our accuser. So what does this mean for us? Not only should we take seriously our own anger at others, we should take very seriously others' anger at us when we have offended them. I find this radical, others-focused mentality to be incredibly significant regarding anger. Why? Because if Jesus is telling me that anger in my heart leads to judgment, then I should be very concerned for my brother when I'm the reason he's angry. And to quote from uh, Don Carson, if we are truly concerned about anger and hate, we shall be no less concerned when we engender them in others. This kind of attitude will, will change your life. Why? Because our heart's default setting is to look for every possible reason to justify our anger and looks for every possible reason for why someone's anger with us is dismissible. Hitting too close to home You know what's necessary for reconciliation to happen with other people in your life? Sometimes admitting that you're wrong. Jeez. Ain't that a miracle whenever that happens? (sighs) Because it's hard. It's hard. Our hearts are wired to hold on to anger and to just cut people out of our lives rather than going to them and reconciling with them. But we need to because the consequences are serious if we don't. Jesus goes on to say, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, we see that Jesus clarifies that, the true right, that true righteousness is a matter of the heart. God calls us to purity, not just in actions, but in our thoughts. And we are called to a purity that refuses to lust. And even without reading what follows just yet, we need to know that there are serious consequences for us if we if we leave the sin of lust undealt with. I want to call our minds back to this root and fruit relationship that each law has. Adultery is the fruit of lust, which is the root. However, 
Adultery is not the only fruit of lust. The root of lust can bear many, many kinds of fruit in your life. All of them terrible. And all of them destructive to your soul. So like anger, we need to take decisive action against the root of lust. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, I, I don't think Jesus could have said this more strongly or more seriously. Now, this hyperbole of removing parts of our body is an effective illustration for how we need to aggressively remove the causes for our sin. Cutting off your hand is metaphorical, but cutting off the things in your life that cause you to sin is meant to be taken very seriously. Is social media leading you to lust? Delete it. Engaging in pornography? Get monitoring and accountability software for your technology. Because sin is deadly. And we are commanded to live righteously. Now, of course, there is so, so, so much more that can be said on these subjects. I'm even remiss to have shared as little as I have on them. There is one final thing I want to address from this text before we are done. So as we have seen, the law, when understood correctly, reveals our great need for righteousness. But it only does this insofar as it reveals to us how sinful we really are. And from this, I see another link that connects anger and lust. And another reason why I think Jesus taught on these sins here. Because anger and lust, as we have seen, are especially effective at demonstrating our sinfulness. Right? And in some ways, we might clearly understand that. uh, Since if we are even a little honest with ourselves, we can know in part how much we fail in these areas. But in other ways, I think we fail to recognize this. Anger and lust are so intrinsic to human experience and the experience of our daily lives that we are so easily tempted to simply attribute our struggle with anger and lust as just part of who we are. We make excuses. We try to do everything to justify ourselves. How we uniquely struggle in this area, unlike anybody else. We say things like, that's just who I am. Or this is how I was raised. Or even, this is how God made me. What do you want me to do? I'm just a passionate guy. My anger is just part of my personality. What do you mean I need to fight lust? I can't fight my hormones. It's nonsense. And we're just trying to make excuses. 
if we really believe, if we really believe that we are sinful in our totality, then that means that every part of us needs to be redeemed and made holy. Not just our actions, but our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, our mindset, our personality. Even the things that we feel so deeply within ourselves that cause us in frustration to cry out, that's just who I am. Even to those things. Even to those things. Jesus comes to us and speaks to our depths. And he says, but but that is not how I will make you to be. No matter how normal to you or automatic your anger feels, what that anger almost invariably produces is sin. And no matter what the prevailing cultural narrative says or how you feel or you might feel you are wired sexually, any inappropriate sexual desire, whether homosexual or heterosexual, is sin. Because the way you think you were born or how you grew up, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all because without Christ, everything in my heart is just sprinting towards sin. All of my default settings are set to sinful. Do you understand? All my desires, my proclivities, my personality are tainted by sin and need the work of Christ in me. He is the only one who can move the dial of my heart from sinful to righteous. He's the only one. That's what this text does for me. It says, Chris, you've got a heart that is totally in love with your sin. And if you don't root out anger and lust, the fruit that it will bear in your life will leave you in ruin. But I can't. I can't. You can't do that. Because the law reveals our great need for righteousness. A righteousness that is not our own. We fail miserably against the standard of true righteousness. We need the one who fulfills the law to trust in him as the source of true righteousness. Do not despair, Christian. Do not despair, brother and sisters. For not only does he give us the great gift of his righteousness, he gives to us freely by faith and trust in him he also gives us the power by his spirit to live righteously to decisively address the anger and lust in our hearts and lives will you pray with me heavenly father we we thank you that your 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 word is so powerful so much more powerful than our sinful hearts really want it to be. Lord, your law is a mirror. 
we see our fallenness and we see your righteousness. Lord, I pray for these people. I pray that they would not despair. Lord, do not let them wallow in self-pity. Do not let them feel as if all this is impossible and they should just throw their hands up and give up. Lord, let that not be so today. Let them instead run to the source of righteousness, to Jesus our Savior. No matter how deeply they feel that their sin is just part of them, Lord, let them know that that's not true. Teach them. Teach them that you have made them to be, and you are making them to be so much more, so much freer, so much freer than we have any idea that we are. Free from sin. Free from shame. Lord, awaken, awaken our hearts to know the beauty in your word and to love living righteously, to love your law, as the psalmist says. And by your spirit, let us put to death the deeds of the flesh. Lord, we thank you that we can do this by your strength and it is not dependent on our own. Lord, we worship you and thank you that you have done this in us. You have produced a good work in us and you will do it to completion. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Your charge for this week. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reveals to us the kind of righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. And through his exposition of the law, he makes clear that the the law reveals our need for righteousness. Why? Because if we have broken the spirit of the law, then we have broken the letter of the law. Jesus did not raise the standard. He merely showed them what the standard had always been. The Jews did not understand this, for they thought incorrectly that it was enough to keep the letter of the law. And like them, we need to know the spirit of the law to show us how sinful we really are and how great our need for righteousness really is. So by teaching on anger and lust, Jesus does just that. When we have been angry and hated some another, another when we have done that, we, when we have looked at someone who is not our spouse with sexual desire, when you've done that, you've broken the law in our hearts. And so we must take seriously the depth of our sin and our neediness for Christ's righteousness. And by His strength, to quickly and decisively address the sin in our hearts and our lives. Our benedictions from Jude 24 and 25. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you.